0: Organizations have donated, including Forestburg Playhouse, Mayor Wasner, Narrowsburg Proper, Jeffersonville Bake Shop,
1: Tess. Go to wjffradio.org. WJFF's fabulous online auction. Bid, win, support. Radio Catskill. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees, located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York com And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org Support for Radio Catskill comes from The Calicoon Theatre, an updated vintage movie theatre with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at the com.
2: Good morning and welcome to Catskill Character. I'm your host, Donna Fellenberg. Today, my guest, who hails from Roscoe, New York, is a filmmaker, a musician, an artist, a soccer coach, a husband, and probably most importantly, a dad, John Adams. John has had a very interesting, and as he would say, lucky life. He's been an actor, a model, and an athlete, and he currently devotes his time to coaching his daughter's soccer team and making movies with his entire family. We're going to delve into all of these things. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with John Adams. John, welcome to Catskill Character.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Donna. You
2: grew up here, right?
0: My grandparents came here from Ireland. My father grew up here, and yeah, we grew up here too. So it's three generations now.
2: Three generations of Catskill characters.
0: Definitely. Definitely.
2: You've spoken to me before about being lucky in your life. Do you think that having art as your compass was something that was really fortunate and very lucky for you?
0: I got a lot of feelings, and I don't think I love talking about them as much as I would like to paint them or write them in a song or make a movie about them. And so, yeah, absolutely, art has just been a great way for me to get things out and express how I'm feeling. You know, it's funny, my art changes, whether I'm living in Roscoe or, like, when we lived in Los Angeles. And it's it's really funny to look at the different times of my life and what my art looks like. And sometimes it's really dark, and sometimes it's super bright. Sometimes it's kind of shallow, and sometimes it's deep. And mm-hmm. and that happens with, you know, like I said, painting songs, and movies. Yeah, it's been a nice way to stay sane.
2: But you had kind of, like, two different things that you were really in love with. You were an athlete. You went to Denison College on a a soccer scholarship. You wanted to be a professional soccer player. What happened there?
0: Yes. So my whole youth, I wanted to be a pro soccer player. I watched the German club teams and that was my big dream and I worked so hard at it. And um, I got recruited to a bunch of different colleges. And I ended up actually going to a college that wasn't my first choice because I was recruited to go to Dartmouth and the the coach that recruited me got fired right before admissions. Everything kind of came crumbling down and I ended up going to a school out in Ohio called Denison, which I loved. I had a great time and got hurt pretty quick. I think it was a combination of getting hurt and also realizing that maybe this was going to be hard to be a pro. That dream came to a very quick stop when I really hurt my knee, and I had to come up with some new ideas.
2: And so your first idea was what?
0: <laughs> to quit college.
2: <laughs> the hell <laughs> so, with the whole thing.
0: I, okay, so I was heavily into punk rock. I, was a, like I, had, I had a mohawk at this time. I was starting to really question everything. I was a bit of a wise ass. I was, up until college, I was very careful and, and very healthy and never experimented with drugs or even alcohol. Got to college. That all changed. So I quit college and decided I was just going to hitchhike around the country. And, you know, at that time, I thought it was going to be some kind of road prophet. You know, I wanted to be like Jack Kerouac. And it was a great choice.
2: Well, it gives you a lot of time to think.
0: A ton of time to think. There's a lot of time sitting on the side of the road, not getting a ride. And also, it was really hard living on the road, out of a sleeping bag, not knowing where you're gonna eat or where you're gonna go next or who's gonna pick you up and whether they're psychotic or whether they're friendly, it really ground me down. And after four or five months, I realized I don't think I wanna be a homeless drifter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's a lot of romance to being a homeless drifter.
2: I think there's more romance when you read about somebody else doing it. Yeah,
0: I'm with you on that.
2: So what'd you do then, John?
0: (laughs) So I actually went back to college. I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, and I became a comparative religion major. Oh, yeah, of course. Just the obvious choice. On the road, you either get picked up by psychos or Christians. Oh. And I'd gone from, I'm going to be a pro soccer player, to what am I going to do? And so I found that that would be something to study. You know, when people ask me, what are you going to do with studying religion? I said, I have no idea, but I don't have any idea what I'm going to be doing anyhow. So I might as well study something that at the moment interests me. And I loved it.
2: So this was like around 1990, you graduated, and what
0: did you decide to do then? So obviously I just followed the straight line, and I I became a bartender in um, San Francisco. I didn't even go to my own graduation. My last day of class, I took a final, I got in my 51 Chevy and I drove to San Francisco. And I saw an ad in the paper that said, do you have a brain the size of a pea? And it turned out- Oh, it did, they
2: didn't say. It was no,
0: for... it just said, do you have a brain the size of a pea? And I, so I uh, went and it turned out to be as a bartender. But it was at this really crooked kind of bar where they did a lot of gambling. Oh. Yeah, I oh. knew I was in, in for a good experience when I got the job. And the first day, the guy was showing me all the stuff. And he wasn't too concerned about drinks. But what he was really concerned was when he was, you know, doing dice on the corner, that I knew how to get to the heater if there was a problem. The heater? You mean a gun? Exactly. I was like, the heater? What are you you talking about, the heater? He opened a cigar box. He says, that's the heater. It got super dark and creepy, eventually so much so that I had to leave. But the horizon was calling, so Mm -hmm. I was lucky. And my mom said, hey, why don't you uh, try being a model? And I thought that's just like the most silly thing ever. But I guess I took her advice. I went and talked to an agency. And a couple months later, a French agent saw my picture and invited me to go to Paris. I had maybe done one job, I think, for Volkswagen. I didn't know anything. I hadn't wrapped my brain around what being a model really meant. So when I was asked, hey, would you come to Paris for a week for the shows, actually? I was like, yeah, well, that sounds terrific. I got a ticket and i went to paris i left my car and my clothes and everything else and i didn't come home ever actually i never went back to san francisco
2: weren't you there for like three years yeah i
0: ended up being there for about three years and
2: you were working for some really important designers, Versace, Armani. I've seen the pictures.
0: I was extremely <laughs> lucky. I knew how lucky I was because I was in Morocco, in Marrakesh, at you know, these villas hanging out with Giorgio Armani. We were having dinner together and talking about life, and I couldn't believe it. It just was really magic
2: you decided to come back and you worked for Calvin Klein.
0: Right. So basically the way the modeling industry works is you at least it used to in the 90s was you would go to Europe as a nobody and you'd you'd hope to get a, a job with Armani or or you know Versace or you know one of the French designers and then what happens is is the American designers who have all the money then they pick you up cuz now you're famous. You're in GQ, you're in Loma Vogue, you're in famous in the fashion world. And that's the way it would work. You would go there you'd make your image plus they're really good at photography and they're you know very artistic over in Europe but they really took it seriously more as an art form you come home and you would get a job with you know Ralph Lauren Macy's Calvin Klein and that was where you made your money you didn't make a lot of money in Europe working for Giorgio Armani but you came home and that's when you cashed your check
2: so as a model the big difference between the two is the money basically
0: absolutely yeah you know it was a real art form over there and they mm-hmm. kind of treated you as an artist. It was fun. You know, I know at the time it would show up at seven in the morning and have croissants and coffee, and you wouldn't start shooting until 11. You'd shoot for an hour, and then you'd have more food, and they'd want to get to know you, and you'd be talking about art, and then they'd, you know, you'd get back into the studio, and it was totally different. When I returned here, you were more meat. You know, it was okay. It was, it was really fun. I, I, I'll tell you that, you know, I was Calvin Klein's fit model, and I don't think I ever met a nicer man than him. He was so generous to me. He 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 treated me wonderfully well. And the whole organization did. But it was money. And, you, you know, we were in on all the money meetings and everything like that. It was just a, you know, obviously it's money too in, of in Italy. But it was a different world back in the United States. Yeah. You know, it's funny. When I was a model in Europe, I really wanted to be in a band. I was starting to write music. I had an acoustic guitar that I traveled with all the time, and you know that was my dream. And it was funny because I was successful at mm. being a model, but then I, I noticed that it wasn't as fulfilling as I thought maybe it would be. Mm. I really wanted to do something that was going to be fulfilling artistically. So as I was thankful to be making money and traveling all over and having a wonderful time, I really wanted to do this rock and roll. So when I got home and I started making some loot, I started buying guitars and amps and living in a beautiful apartment in the West Village. And I put a band together, and we built a nice studio in our apartment. Wow. And we started going for it. Things were going quite well. We started to get some um, you know, record company interest, and uh, we got a, some great gigs, and things were starting to fly along just the way I thought they would if I worked hard.
2: And then... It seems like your luck ran out there for a little bit.
0: Yep, it looked like it ran out, but I think actually it only yeah. got better. As On the
2: surface, it looks like it, your luck ran out, because yeah.
0: what happened? Well, what happened was I found out I got cancer. It coincided right when this great record company called Caroline Records was coming to see us at CBGB's for a possible record deal. And I got all this news that I had lymphoma, everything came basically crashing down right then Crushing me
2: you're listening to Catskill character I'm your host Donna Feldberg and my guest today is John Adams we're going to take a short break and come right back so stay tuned
1: Recently on Wait, Wait, Jesse Klein speculated on why Jeff Bezos is trying to impress everyone with his rocket ship. Maybe he was just getting jealous that there's no, uh, the phrase is not Amazon and chill. You know what I mean? I'm Peter Sagal. We're trying to impress you by bringing on NBA superstar Chris Bosch. Join us for this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR.
2: Sunday morning at 10 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Catskill Character. If you've just tuned in, my guest today is filmmaker John Adams. Let's get back to it. Here you are, John. You're working for Calvin Klein. Life is good. you got all the guitars, you got the studio in your apartment, and you get this diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I took a biopsy, I think, on like a Thursday, and the doctor said, on Monday, I'm going to call you with the results. So I waited. And the phone rang and I picked it up and the doctor said, hey John, it's Dr. Gabriel, are you with anyone? And he said, so it turns out that yes, you you have uh, lymphoma. I remember I was speechless. Although I was speechless, like I had the wind knocked out of me, I also remember thinking, wow, I totally know what my identity is now. Life just zeroed down a funnel and it just became obvious, which was, but I'm gonna live. I'm gonna fight. It was, you know what it was. I like. I was never in the army, but it felt like I got drafted, and they pushed me out, and said, start shooting. And I remember, I really felt life just hit me, in a, in a beautiful way, and that doesn't mean I wasn't scared out of my mind, but it also knew I was gonna go down swinging. So it really gave me meaning, a wonderful meaning. I did not have insurance and the only way I could get into a clinic was if I proved that I was completely broke. So basically all those 4 years that I had, you know, made money and felt good and you know was as I said pretty lucky, started to put money in the bank, everything had to go. I had to sell the rugs, lose the apartment, lose the guitars and proved that I was flat broke. And then I got into a clinic in uh, Mount Sinai where I shot chemo with um, about 20 other people that were also without insurance. And so we we, we were a great unit, you know, like I, I met really wonderful people. We all had the same deal. We all did chemo together. We were plugged in together. It was called Hemo Chemo. It was brutal and beautiful. That's what it was.
2: And I think you told me that you went home to your parents' house.
0: Yeah, so since I'd lost everything, I'd lost my apartment, and uh, I didn't have any more money. My parents were just kind of wonderful and very quietly brought me home, where I That caught me off guard. Oh. Sorry. It's okay. I'm going to gather it in a minute here. I just got to just gather it. All right, I think I got it. You know, I got to give a lot of credit to my mom for being my friend. Mm. You know, a lot of things fell away. I don't think it was easy for either of my parents to deal with it. And they allowed me my dignity and brought me to my chemos and cleaned up all the terrible things that go along with it. And they were really nice. It was wonderful. And uh, I made it through. And I think, I think back when people always say, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, and I'm so not sorry, because once that happened, I've never missed a minute of life.
2: While you were talking, I, I know later on I wanted to talk to you about your, your kids and how important they are to you, but I was thinking, wow, that whole experience really must have informed, whether you were conscious of it or not, the way inform the way you would eventually want to raise your kids to be your friends because you said your mom was your friend
0: I think that's super insightful I've never thought of it like that and I think you're right on the money
2: okay so anyway so you decide after this you are healthy and what are you going to do now
0: when I was going through this, I said, if I make it, whatever comes my way, I'm going to say yes. Mm-hmm. And that was really a great idea, and then sometimes it wasn't such a great idea. Yeah,
2: sometimes you got to say no.
0: Sometimes you got to say no, but I needed to learn that. I said yes to everything, and I ended up getting into a pretty ferocious drug problem. And I think it also had a lot to do with trying to deal with all those emotions of going through that struggle. So I remember when they first told me my chances I was like, "Oh my god, this this doctor just gave me a 50/50 chance. Was he crazy? What mm-hmm. are you talking about?" It was life and yeah. and death. And so sometimes people
2: have survivor guilt. Yeah, right? and I think
0: I had a lot of it. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: So you you started going out with Toby Poser. Got lucky again, didn't you?
0: So lucky. <laughs> Toby is the most beautiful person in the world and she is the embodiment of goodness. It's really neat to to be around that. And she's been there with me through thick and thin. Kind of, let's go back to the way my mom was, quietly, you know? you know? you can't tell somebody to quit. No. And you can't tell somebody why they're doing it. You can be strong and be a light and be inspiring. And that's what she was. She got me through, and I've been sober now for uh, 14 years.
2: Yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah. it's wonderful. And so by being sober, my creativity just exploded. And my ability to love and my ability to dream, like I had lost my dream. You know, now I'm dreaming about making another film and writing a song and doing a video with my daughter and uh, the painting that I got to get back to. Those are my dreams, and I had none.
2: A lot of times addicts think that if they stop whatever it is that they're doing, they're not going to be funny anymore. They're not going to be creative. They're not going to be... A great singer, a great actor, and it's really the opposite, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I was worried about the same thing. You know, I started smoking pot because uh, I thought that it made me a better painter. You know, Such
2: a fallacy. Do
0: cocaine because, it think you know, you think it makes you better on stage, <laughs> you know, more lively. Yeah, not true.
2: You got offered a part on a TV show. Tell us about
0: that. Right at the beginning of getting out of my drug issues, I was in a band, we were still playing, we were doing really well, and a TV show came and they'd seen our performance, and one of the things I used to do a lot during my performance was punch myself in the face, And they thought that was really, really, really neat. And uh, they asked me to come do an audition and punch myself in the face. And I did. And they said, we want you to be a jackass character on this reality TV show. I went home. I said, Toby, what do you think? You know, I'd have to move to Los Angeles. She said, you should do it. This is perfect. Got on a plane. Went out for six months. Did this TV show that didn't ultimately get picked up. It was called Rock and Roll Acid Test just amazing living in los angeles being around the cameras seeing it all hanging out with the sound man hanging out with the cameraman hanging out with the producers and seeing what they did watching them work watching them do their magic and learning about the underpinnings of of entertainment
2: so what did you and toby decide to do then
0: well so toby said you're not going to be the lucky guy living out in los angeles we're all coming out there so Lulu and Zelda and Toby all moved out to Los Angeles and we lived in a double wide trailer at the bottom of Topanga Canyon and it was so cool. It could have been the 60s. Toby was going out to try to do more acting. And she had had a really successful career, but now she's turning into her late 30s, going into her 40s. And to be honest, Hollywood really has no respect for her. They
2: don't her. appreciate that.
0: They don't They don't appreciate that people get more beautiful, mm. especially women. I guess they kind of think men get more handsome, but they don't understand how beautiful women get the older they get and how much more interesting they are. And, and Toby was having a really hard time getting jobs as an artist herself. Her heart was getting kind of broken. And I said, hey, you're so smart. Why don't you write your own script and we'll film it? I mean, I watched how they did it. We could do this. And she said, "Okay." And she wrote a script. We bought a camera and two microphones. And with the money we'd saved, we bought an RV. And we hit the road for a year and made our first feature film called Rumble Strips. Learned the ins and outs of creating a feature film. It was incredibly fun. Our kids were our partners.
2: You and Toby decided the way you were going to raise your children was that you were going to be their friends. We're taught not to be our kids' friends. We are their parents. But you two did it completely differently. And Lulu is the older daughter. She's going to graduate. Is it this next year she's going to graduate? Yeah, she's got one more
0: year. She's going back senior year.
2: And, of course, Zelda, that little superstar, whatever it is that you did, it was well, amazing. that's
0: super generous of you to say. I love my girls so much, and they are my friends. They call me John. Uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of flack for that. But I think we're equals, and I've always wanted to honor their power, and I've always just wanted to be their friend. I want them to be able to talk to me. I know I don't know anything. I'm not the master. They can teach me so much. I think the companionship of your children is... Just priceless, really. I'm really happy that we've been able to travel together and talk about everything. And and like when we make films, they've always been there f- with their opinions. We shoot what they want to shoot. Mm-hmm. We say what they want to say. You know, that doesn't mean we always use it. But I think giving our kids confidence is what we all want, mm-hmm. is to be confident to try things and to experiment and to and to be taken seriously. But it's turned out that because of all that, you know, I have these two amazing friends. We all trust each other. It's really beautiful and I love it.
2: And they've been your leading ladies.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're also great <laughs> artists. That's that's also really fun yeah. about both of them. Let's
2: not forget that, no, right?
0: Yeah, I, I, hey, absolutely. I mean, after Rumble Strips, Lulu said, hey, I, I only wanna do behind the scenes stuff. I don't really wanna be an actress. And I thought that was really cool. And And she's got incredible ideas and she's really good behind the camera. Zelda was really interested in acting. She basically starred in you know, Knucklejack, Rumble Strips. She, she didn't want to do a movie that we did called The Shoot. Then we did another movie called Halfway to Zen, where she was the star. Mm-hmm. And by Halfway to Zen, she had really begun to do a lot of camera work, too, and, and played a really integral part in the story. She okay. wrote her part.
2: But now you're into the horror films. I know she did your first horror film with you, The Hatred. What did you learn when you were doing that film that's, that's sort of informing what you're doing now?
0: So that's a great question, and I have a very easy answer, which is horror allows you a lot of creative freedom. Whereas when we were doing drama, we were kind of confined to reality and confined to you know classic human emotions. But the beautiful thing about horror is visually, sonically, acting-wise— you you have so much freedom you can you can experiment you can do anything you want if you have to dial it back down that's okay but you know you can go crazy and it might work because it's fantasy you know horror is fantasy every aspect of it is so exciting another thing that we found out is that the horror community is incredibly inviting they write you up they they want to meet you horror fans watch a horror movie every night and the best thing of all is Brad Pitt doesn't have to be in it. John and Zelda and Toby can be in it. And they're (laughs) just as interested. And so it's a really wonderful community. So many great things about horror.
2: This new film is called The Deeper You Dig. And it's a horror film about love. I just love that concept. These are independent films. And I've always been curious, how do you get them out there to the people? What's the process?
0: The process that we're using is that we apply to festivals first now there's different tiers of festivals you Mm -hmm. know and it it goes from local to you know really well-known festivals and by getting into really well-known festivals you get legitimized and maybe the new yorker is going to write you up or maybe you're going to get interviewed for cn you know with cnn or and that's not to say that all the local press isn't vastly more important but in terms of making your money back or getting a wider audience unfortunately there's only a couple doorways they're the big ones you know like the new york times like the new yorker so we apply to festivals and uh, luckily with uh, the deeper you dig we we got into one of the top tier festivals that is gonna well we hope is gonna help us get a wider audience because we're gonna be out there playing baseball with the big girls and that's gonna be fun so it's like. It's really exciting for us. You know, these uh, we're three people from Roscoe that are going to get, like I said, to go play some cool baseball. Yeah. And um, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's nice to be asked. It's oh. also after spending all that time working on that movie, you know, you never know when you're an artist what you've done. This makes Somebody
2: us, appreciated it.
0: Yes. Thank you. If, yeah. if it feels like, oh, cool. Hey, whew. all right.
2: Well John, I am so excited for you and I'm so happy that you came in today and shared all this with me. I really appreciate it. I just want to ask you to tell the audience what your website is. They want to follow you.
0: Thank you. It's wonderwillproductions.com. All of our stuff is there and all the info about us is on wonderwillproductions.com. Yeah. So
2: good luck this summer. Do they have like uh, contests at these yep. festivals like uh, yeah. con has? Yeah,
0: we got we, you know we're going to hope we get some awards we'll see. You know, our fingers are crossed. Nice thing is, we're, it's going to be the three of us together mm. running around, meeting people, and having a great time in, in Montreal. Montreal. In Montreal. I Come love on, Montreal. I love, yeah. Oh, that's it's great. It's going to be so fun. Donna, thank you. Most importantly, it's not about Fantasia, it's about Cascade character. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what it's about. Yeah, And this is what makes life go around and why life's so fun and exciting. So thanks for making life fun and exciting. You're welcome. I've been looking forward to this interview oh, for a while. me too.
2: Thank you, John. Thanks. You've been listening to Catskill Character. My guest this week has been John Adams, artist and filmmaker from Roscoe, New York. Tune in again next week. For another fascinating conversation on Catskill character, right here on WJFF, I'm Donna Fellenberg. Thanks for listening.
1: Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Calicoon Theatre. An updated vintage movie theater with new releases, film festivals, nostalgic screenings, live music events, and more. Information and schedule at thecalicoontheater.com. Support for WJFF comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York, twoqueenscoffee.com. And from listener donations at wjffradio.org. Hi, I'm Nina Totenberg.
2: Are you someone who talks about how great public radio is, but you're still not a donor? Rather than wait for the next pledge drive, you can support the programs you love by donating that unwanted vehicle. It could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station, and you could get a tax deduction. Or you could just give us hundreds of dollars directly. We'd like that a lot. And thank you.
0: Go to
1: wjffradio.org and donate right now. WJFF Jeffersonville W233AH Monticello Radio Catskill's
0: fabulous online auction is bursting with great gifts and amazing items for you to bid on including the DeBruce Tasting Menu the Chee Hive the Calicoon Theater Catskill's Cycle Works River Family Wellness Win great items and support Radio Catskill Register and bid now Go to WJFFradio.org Bid. Win. Support. Radio Catskill. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we walk walked through the gate of summer by visiting three cooks in three very different parts of the country to see what June tastes like for them. We'll hear about the shrimp of coastal Georgia, the salmon of Alaska, the preserves of Appalachia, and more. Coming up on The Splendid Table.
1: Sunday at noon on Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college, with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com And from listener donations at wjffradio.org
0: Support for Radio Catskill comes from the NeverSync General Store, featuring an award-winning chef, smoked barbecue year-round, local products, and catering, now offering takeout.